Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And now here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Sunday Science Q&A. Apparently it is such an unusual thing to see me being still that our producer Trent's immediate presumption was that I had uh, frozen and technology had uh, gone awry. In fact, I just had one of the, I only do it, but twice a year I have a moment of stillness. But we're back now to the manic phase, so that's okay. Um, this is uh, it's a, a special Sunday Science Q&A where the predominant subject is going to be sharks because people love finding out more about sharks. And uh, we will be talking about other ideas of the ocean, oceanography. And uh, we also have a special experiment with Helen Chersky uh, later on as well. Uh, I'll tell you a couple of things before we get started uh this is we've got a new series starting on cosmic shambles next week which uh i talk to various different people about ideas of finding meaning and purpose in what can appear to be a meaningless and purposeless universe and we start with brian green brilliant uh mathematician uh and uh, and physicist and author of incredible books like the hidden reality and his most recent one until the end of time which is brilliant and then the series has people like uh, Tim Minchin and Neil Gaiman and Francesca Stavrokopoulou and Andrean and uh, Carlo Rovelli and uh, so have a look for that also the latest episode of Uncanny Hour our series about strange and uncanny fictions on uh, film and television is all about John Carpenter's The Thing and that went up on Friday and we have got on that people like Stuart Lee and uh, Alan Moore and Susie Gage and uh, also yeah We've got someone who was at the South Pole Telescope when they very first saw the thing. Uh, so that's fantastic as well. So have a look out for that. Um, and uh, I'm going to mention as well the Ugly Animal Preservation Society because this is all about sharks and uh, because we did, if you look at the Cosmic uh, Shambles YouTube channel, you will find there was a whole episode basically of uh, them on our extra, the 24 hour show. We did a 24 hour show extra because we couldn't fit everything into 24 hours and uh, the Ugly Animal Preservation Society, which is fights for uh, us to love more those animals that are, are rare and due to the fact that they may not appear to human beings at least to be particularly uh, cute or physically attractive to try and elevate them uh, in the pantheon of our love and uh, so uh, the one of the I think it was the winner was the goblin shark which is a fascinating shark and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later on as well um, so uh, live questions if you want to send live questions you can, the best thing is probably just to twitter uh, at cosmic shambles is our Twitter name um, or you can actually pop them in the live chat as well um, and uh, next week is going to be one all about earth and geosciences so you can uh, don't put those questions in the chat yet save them for four o'clock onwards uh, but that's Professor Ian Stewart and Dr Anya Katwa as well that's on next week so uh, today we've got uh, someone who's just uh, uh, just does amazing shows that uh, my son loves and probably your children love and also and he's branched out he does so many different he's been on Infinite Monkey Cage on various occasions and he also has a swan with him today as well which i've just heard in the background which is very exciting what we're hoping is that steve Batchel, who's actually sat on a river may well get attacked by wild fowl not in so that he's actually harmed but in a way that's funny enough for that to become some kind of youtube or twitch hit or whatever else is used nowadays and we're also joined by dr georgia jones as well who's senior lecturer at bournemouth university founder of shark stuff charity and uh, her phd D uh, was in Great White Shark Ecology as well. So we'll be talking more about that. But first of all, Helen Chersky. Hello, Helen. How are you? 
I'm doing very well. It feels like yeah, spring. I'm so excited that it, I can go outside without a squillion layers. That um, I, it makes me very happy. So yes, I'm doing very well. For my birthday yesterday, my wife has bought me three different coats that she said were all in the sale, which I think, though, I've never had such a strong hint of this lockdown, you being in the house when normally you're away, has become very difficult. <laughs> Here are an enormous number of different forms of coat for you to get out of the house. Um, it was beautiful yesterday, actually. I was walking down the canal near me and, and just, just beginning to see the fish as they come to the surface just to grab midges because the midges are back out as well. And though midges eventually become annoying, at this point, they're delightful, as you said, because that seasonal change, you really feel it, don't you? Yeah, I, I'm... Uh, it, I mean, this, this day last week, I think it was minus three. So we have to appreciate the the uh, the changes and so i've got some science this week although i have to say it's so these you know this uh looking for a piece, a piece of science in history every week is really hard in january and february because I've, i might have said this before but scientists are really lazy in january and february they don't publish anything i've been going through historical papers and everyone's august september they publish their paper nobody publishes anything in january and february um but there is a piece of science that happened uh, it's relatively recent it was 2004 and so not that long ago, 16 years ago, 17 years ago, um, the largest known diamond in the universe was discovered. And if you work in carrots, I have to read this to make sure that the number's right. It was 10 billion trillion trillion carat diamond. And where it is, um, it's actually a um, a uh, white dwarf that has collapsed. It's in the constellation of Centaur. Uh, I can't read my handwriting. Centaurus, that's it. And um, so it's about 50 light years away. And this diamond is two and a half uh, thousand miles across. So what's happened is there's a white dwarf, it's collapsed, and the center of it has crystallized. And they know it's crystallized because they were watching the equivalent of earthquakes on the surface. Um, and so basically, only 50 light years away out in the universe, well within the reach of your average billionaire by about 100 years time, I reckon, uh, there is there is a diamond two and a half thousand miles across. And it was discovered 17 years ago uh, this week. I, I want to ask that because yesterday with my son, we were looking at various different gemstones and reading about carrots. And I'm still not entirely sure what that means as, uh, as, as, as a measurement. What, how, how do we know, you know, that, that I, mean, I suppose the most simple thing would be something like gold, for instance. Ah, so carrots are different depending on what you're measuring with them. But that's as much as I know about them. I did mean to look it up. I got distracted by the there's another thing I'll do later, which took a bit more of my time. But I don't actually know. But they are. Um, Yes, they're one of those unhelpful imperial units where people define them in different ways for different substances. So they're not very standardised. So, but I'm sorry, I can't help with that. That's OK. Do you know what? It's lovely just every now and again to find out you don't know, you don't know absolutely everything because you're reasonably brimful of knowledge. Um, Steve Backshaw, it's lovely to have you the here last back on the river. On the river would have, you on the river would have been, was that June last year when we were doing our Albert Hall Oceans game? May. It was middle of May, was it? Sometime? Yeah, that, 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 that sounds about right. Yeah, and I, I remember having the bevy of swarms I obviously train beautifully to, to arrive exactly on cue, just cruising past elegantly at the perfect moment, uh, which, uh, you know, is going to happen again in about 3.2 minutes. So make sure your camera's on me right then. So what have you, I mean, it's wonderful that you're near the river. Duck goes by, lovely. Two ducks <laughs> go by. I love these. These are just all action shots. Um, but uh, it is to have water near you. And to be able to observe, we were just talking about the changing of the seasons. And I imagine that you have a very keen eye in terms of just suddenly going this, you know, we're no longer am I observing this particular creature now that will not be in my sight lines for a while. And then you see it come back and you go, now there is this seasonal change. What for you are the markers? Well, I, I would love to say that I'm out here because of my synthesis with, uh, with water as a fundamental element of our being. But actually, it's because I've got three screaming kids inside. And the only place I can be is out here. <laughs> um, the, the things that I notice most of all are the invertebrates. So uh, when you start to see invertebrate life coming back, that, that usually signals that winter is coming to a close and spring is beginning. And when it really kicks off, when you have the explosion of, of uh, caddisflies, mayflies, alderflies, uh, and then everything else that comes in to feast on those, but it, the hirundines, the swifts, the, the hobbies, uh, the, the, the larger inversions, the dragonflies, the damselflies, that's when I really know that, that spring has sprung. And it is, to my mind, one of the great wildlife spectacles found in the UK. And it's all triggered by the emergence of life that has spent the majority of the year underwater and then is emerging as a winged adult to begin with uh, 
business time. That's still what I find one of the most remarkable things about nature is how unusual mammals are. And, you know, the, the, this idea of actually just starting off as a little version of ourselves and then we grow and things lengthen and that's it. And then you look across at so many of the majority of animals and you go, this incredible metamorphosis, this incredible utter, you know, especially when we think of things like butterflies, you know, that basically are becoming just this strange pulp, which then emerges as this incredibly beautiful thing. That transition to me is, is something that I would never stop finding remarkable. I completely agree. I mean, obviously not all invertebrates have that complete metamorphosis that you see in animals like butterflies, but the ones that do are, are some of the most transfixing of all. And, and to watch a dragonfly transform from this alien predatory nymph into a winged adult, seeing it pump its wings full of hemolymph and finally uh, take to the air it is a, a miniature in miracle. It's something, uh, sorry, another way around, a miracle in miniature. It's something I, I could watch over and over again every day for the rest of my life and I would never tire of it. Now, I don't know if, you, I, I presume you might have a show and tell, though, though frankly, it's a pretty impressive one already, as we said. So what, what do, do you have a show and tell on top of the show? I do, yes. So, so we're talking sharks. So uh, one of the most um, quintessential things a shark does is looking at its dentition, its teeth. And it is absolutely fascinating to see what a shark's jaw looks like. This is a, a mock-up of a shark's jaw. It's composed of cartilage, not bone, which is a, a spongier, uh, more flexible substance. And I don't know if you can see this on the camera, but the teeth are arranged in rows, usually about five rows. And as the teeth at the front, which are the ones that are active, uh, break off, the ones behind, almost like they're on a conveyor belt, roll forward to take their place. Uh, some shark species will get through twenty to 50,000 different teeth in their lifetime. It's thought they could have uh, actually evolved from their scales, from the placoid scales, the dermal denticles. And the kinds of teeth define what the animal does. So that is the tooth of a sand tiger shark. It's a classic fish feeding shark. It's tricuspid, it's long, it's thin. It's great for snagging a hold of slippery fish. Or you could find one form from a uh, tiger shark, that is a, an opportunist, an omnivore. And it's more like a tan opener with a serrated edge, very good for cutting through the shells of turtles. We, we were diving and you could find handfuls of these on the bottom in places where tiger sharks are numerous because they're just falling out all the time. Sometimes as much uh, as one every, every couple of weeks would drop out of their mouth. A big step up, though, is one of the most uh, numerous things replicated in the fossil record, which is one of these. I'm sure you all know what, what that is. This is a, a, a megalodon tooth, very, very common fossil, uh, almost identical, apart from its size, to the teeth of uh, a mature great white shark. Also serrated at the edge, if you look closely, so really, really good for cutting through um, things like blubber, uh, which is one of the reasons why uh, a lot of people have hypothesized that this could have been an animal that feeds mainly on things like whales. Uh, we still don't have any real idea of quite how big Megalodon got. There was some huge, huge uh, estimates in the past. Those have tended to be rationalized down to, to a more manageable level now, but it was still a pretty full-on beast. And uh, that's one of my most treasured possessions, a, a fossilized Megalodon tooth. That's fantastic, fantastic. And, and uh, we will obviously be talking a lot more about sharks, not even later on, right now, Georgia. Um, now you, now you, so you, you, so you, you specialised initially in looking at the ecology of the great white sharks. Um, that's what I did my PhD on. And actually I looked at their teeth uh, pretty closely during that, but they weren't the first sharks that I worked on. So where did you start and why did you start? It's always interesting <laughs> to know what draws people in. Um, I started in the Seychelles and I snorkeled into one, <laughs> but I've always had uh, a really long-standing fascination with them anyway, because my dad, in his wisdom, let me watch Jaws when I was about five, um, so <laughs> I was fairly uh, interested, probably more in a, in a kind of terrified way from a very early age. Um, I was convinced, I always knew that I wanted to work with wildlife. And I thought it was going to be uh, on birds. And I'd been working on birds for quite some time, which is what actually took me to the Seychelles. And one day on my little island that I was working on, I went for a snorkel and literally snorkeled into a shark. It was very small, um, this little black tip reef shark. And it was just transformative. I looked at it. It looked at me. It felt like eons went by, but it was probably about a second. I was like, wow um and it was just one of the most incredible moments of my life and then serendipitously um just after uh that when my contract on birds was going to end 
I found out about a job going with the Marine Conservation Society over in Seychelles and I applied and got it and I was only supposed to be out there for six months and ended up staying for four years. See, th- those transcendental moments really fascinate me because, it, uh, you know, very different creature, very different creature. Hugh, one way, but Hugh Warwick, who we've had on before, and his specialist area is, is hedgehogs. And he had a moment where he was spending a long time monitoring hedgehogs. And then one day he was just following this hedgehog and he knew which hedgehog. It was a hedgehog called Nigel. I remember this because he, he very much saw this personality in each hedgehog. And he then just lay down on this road. It was late at night. And the two just looked at each other. And he had that moment, like you said, which is some, whatever the human mind is doing, whatever is going on there, a sense of connection, which means that that animal will never be the same again for them. Yeah, something shifts, I think. And I've had a few of those in my life. And that is definitely one of the most memorable. And what is your show and tell today? So Steve beat me to it on my Megalodon tooth. (laughs) Which was I'm sorry, Georgia. <laughs> That's why it's bigger than mine as well. How dare you? Um, but I have some opposite end of the scale. I've got some very, very tiny teeth um, from some of our local species um, caught. So I live in Pool, and these were actually caught uh, off the Dorset coast. Oh. <laughs> so this is the very impressive jaw of a small spotted cat shark, often called a uh, dogfish. I don't know if you can see... I get really how very, very tiny its teeth are. Very small. So this is a fish feeder. Uh, so it's basically a mini version of, of the big one that you've seen. Whereas this one is from something called a smooth hand. And if I bring that close to the camera, I don't know if you can see, but it doesn't actually have pointy teeth at all. It's got very smooth, kind of flat crushing plates. And that's because this species feeds on crabs um, instead of fish. So it uses these plates to crush through the crab shells and these you can actually catch from the beach at lots of places around the UK. I'm kind of fascinated by the one by with, the one with the tiny tiny teeth because it honestly doesn't look as though they could bite through anything. <laughs> I am um, a big sort of kitchen knife thing that, yeah. that Steve showed us. How do they do they just hold on and sort of they get enough grip just to pull chunks off? How how do they chomp through anything with teeth like that yeah they are they are very small but they are very very sharp um so they're very good and they've got relatively powerful jaws for their size as well so they're pretty good at yeah ripping chunks off i think i actually dissected all of this female and did find quite a big chunk of fish skeleton um inside her as well yeah brilliant that is small, uh, small but mighty and i and i should uh, i love the fact that you know you, you you probably just put together that show and tell in the last minute you've got so much out. oh my goodness steve's got steve's shown what i was going to show fortunately i pulled the other drawer open and here we have all these shark jaws as well um all sorts <laughs> this is uh and i should mention by the way steve has a new series which is in the autumn you're doing a series on sharks aren't you three-part series for sky yes that's that's right yeah we're doing a, a series which biology and most importantly conservation of sharks uh, it's kind of been my my passion project for for the last 10 years or so really working on the the conservation of sharks and to get an opportunity to do a full series based on it is is great it's difficult though uh, as you know georgia will be able to tell you all i'm, I'm sure uh, one of the difficult things about sharks is is actually seeing them doing anything other than feeding you know seeing them seeing them doing simple things like like breeding it's happened a handful of times in history. So, so managing to capture those moments of, you know, sharks pupping and breeding, finding where they go um, is super, super challenging. But yeah, I, I've very much enjoyed getting stuck into trying. Brilliant. Well, hopefully you'll also, because I know that Helen, about she's a big fan of the Sharknado films and she oh. wants to know how uh, um, uh, factually accurate the Sharknado films are. So I'll let you have time to talk about your favourite Sharknado films later on, Helen. Um, let's start off with a question from Christopher. Uh, Christopher says, uh, I remember seeing a talk by uh, Steve some years ago. I don't know when as time is an illusion these days. But he was saying that the international demand for shark fin soup was on the increase. Has this trend hopefully reversed, Steve? It's not really changed uh, so from uh, whenever i did that talk if it was i, I think the last time I, I did a, a tour of shark talks was about four years ago um and then the main market was in mainland china now it's shifted out into indochina so thailand vietnam uh, indonesia 
there is there is still a huge market for shark fin soup. It, it's still sold in restaurants here in this country. Thankfully, not very many. Um, but it's not the the only thing that's that's culpable in the destruction of sharks. There are a huge amount of other things, and it's not just a problem uh, that is limited to the other side of the world. You know, we use uh, shark liver oil in a tremendous amount of things, from uh, cosmetics to, to to medicines. Shark is on sale in fish and chip shops right here in the UK. And it's, you know, never labeled as shark. It's always labeled as something else. Um, but all of it together, you put all of the different factors, whether it's whether it's bycatch, whether it's long lining, whether it's targeted fishing for, for, for meat. This is one of the most persecuted groups of animals on the planet. And we will definitely lose some really big, iconic species within my lifetime. And if we're not careful, we could lose a significant amount of the species of sharks around the world. It, it does seem to me, I don't know if Jordan can back me up on this, but it seems like we have a certain sea change when it comes to attitude. It seems like there's an awful lot more people who are now on side in terms of shark conservation, who have moved away from that 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 central tenet of, of sharks being just literally terrifying like the second you're in the, in the water with them you're going to be you're going to be eaten alive through to an awful lot more people appreciating them and wanting to focus on on what we have to do to save them i just hope that we can get that groundswell of opinion moving in the right direction before it's too late see what i think what's what's yeah. interesting when you say that is i think of the first time that my son saw jaws and i think it's true of a lot of kids is one they thing all know is that it's inaccurate in terms of its presentation so they still enjoy it as a thriller but they they turn to their parents and go do you know that actually and that seems to be to show the beginning of something that's very interesting georgia yeah but, but, i mean what how do how can people know for instance when shark products is there a way of being able i mean are there any clues in terms of what the fish might be if they go to the fish and chip shop is there a way of going a thing but you know what that's there's a possibility that shark i'm not going to order that um it could be called something like rock salmon um flake that's probably more australian um basically if you don't know the species i wouldn't i would treat it as suspicious you should kind of always really know what it is that you're eating there's something to add as well, which is that there's, there's, a, there's a book that was written by Ian Urbina, um, I think it was published about this time last year, called The Outlaw Ocean. And it's all about lawlessness at sea. And of course, one of the problems with all of this is that you can have laws that say you should or shouldn't do this. And you can have consumers who want to buy this and not that. But actually, if the system doesn't work in terms of, you know, being transparent about what's happening, um, it's you, it's almost impossible to do anything. And anyone who's really interested in this, I really encourage you to read The Outlaw Ocean. It's a big, chunky book. But, and it goes through lots of different things, but it really highlights this problem of how invisible things are at sea. So, you know, there may be the shark finning going out at sea, you know, they, there's this horrible practice of landing sharks when they're alive, taking the fins off them and, and putting them back in the ocean, the rest of the shark still alive, you know, without its fins, which is just barbaric, uh, whatever your ethical stance is. And, um, the thing is they can do that and they're never seen. There's no regulation, right? There's no enforcement. And it really highlights the problem of all that. And I, I, I feel like I'm going to start talking about that quite a lot more because I think that people don't realise how big the ocean is and how easy it is to do things in the ocean that are illegal. So just having a law isn't good enough. Just having a sticker on a tin isn't good enough. Like you need to sort of go further back in the process and really dig into what's happening. There is a process, there is a thing in there he talks about, which is fish laundering, um, which is basically exactly like money laundering. Like fish come from somewhere, they, they are shipped around enough ships and ports that, and they come out looking like all the other fish, right? They've basically been, their illegal background has been taken away from them. Anyway, so it's a bit depressing, but it, it sort of, it's so easy to do illegal things at sea. Yeah. Absolutely. Enforcement is, I think, one of the biggest problems facing shark conservation. If you have things like marine protected areas, like where there's laws, etc., like you can't fish here, then who's going to go out and enforce however many hundreds of kilometres of ocean? That's an awful lot of resource that most countries don't have. It's, it's interesting. I, I think it's that. important. Sorry, Rob, I, I, I think it's important that uh, that we acknowledge, though, that, that there is a tremendous amount of effort being undertaken by by enormous amount of NGOs and governments around the world to address this problem at every single stage of the process. And yes, big illegal factory ships at sea are an issue, but they're an issue that, that are being tackled by, by an enormous amount of, of organisations. But then also any vessel that is landing 
just fins and getting rid of the bodies. It's going to have to land those fins somewhere. And there is an increasing amount of, of governments around the world who are willing to, to put into place the guidelines of CITES and of IUCN and, and to try and enforce uh, protocols to, to test to do genetic testing on fins to find out where they're coming from, to find out if they're coming from protected species, and increasingly to try and enforce things like no fins attached, which essentially is saying you can't just bring a fin back into into a port in a, you know, in a regulated nation. It needs to have the animal attached to it to, to avoid, at very least, that huge waste that comes with, with pure finning. Because that, that is one of the most ludicrous things about the, the present shark trade is, is as you say, Taking in an animal, taking just the fins and then dumping the rest overboard, it just doesn't make any sense. And particularly when you're talking about an apex predator that is is always going to be, you know, there's going to be significantly fewer of them in the, in the environment of the things they feed on. And their ability to regulate everything below them is is huge and complex. And you start taking them out on the scale we're doing right now, the knock-on effects are, are going to be catastrophic. Now, we were mentioning that uh, younger people, hopefully people, hopefully we have some optimism in terms of their outlook on many of these things. So here is Eleanor, who's age six. And her question is, uh, Georgia, if I can start with you. She would like to know, are sharks really as old as dinosaurs? They're older. <laughs> um, in short, they evolved about uh, 450 million years ago. So they are they're actually technically a bit older than the dinosaurs. See, that's a fascinating thing, isn't it, which is when you do see species where when we see, you know, evolution being mutation, heredity and natural selection. And then there are, you know, as we look at the tree of life, there are certain forms where the longevity is kind of remarkable to me anyway. Yeah, they're incredible and diverse. <laughs> And, and a lot of those early, early sharks that would have been, as, as Georgia says, 400, 450 million years ago, were, were real swimming oddities. You know, you had animals with giant bony plates covering, not bony, but with giant plates covering their heads. You had Stethacanthus, which kind of looked like it had a shower head stuck to its head, and Helicoprion with a giant tooth twirl in its mouth. But once you got to about 200 million years ago, there were, there were plenty of shark species, which from, from what we've seen from the fossil record, were pretty close to, to animals that are around today. And that's amazing for, for vertebrate to, to exist in pretty much the same form for that amount of time is is utterly extraordinary. Um, so that, that's talking about, you know, evolution and the fossil record in deep time. But there's also a lot of work recently on on the age of sharks, the longevity of sharks. Um, and there's actually I'm going to pass over to Georgia from this because because I stole her, her shark tooth. Uh, wonder moment earlier on <laughs> so she can give you the greenland shark wonder moment about uh, about the age of sharks oh yeah um just a couple of years ago i think they discovered that greenland sharks are the oldest living vertebrate on the planet and they can live over i think it's about 300 years 300 to 500 I yeah think. which wow. is bonkers i do actually have next to me one of the ways that you can age sharks which you probably won't be able to see too well uh this is a very small shark vertebra, and in the vertebra, this is the backbone of the shark, you can actually count the rings inside. I don't know if the rings will show up on camera very well, probably not, but there are little like annual rings um, laid down inside the vertebra, and you basically count them like tree rings, and that can help you to age, age sharks. See, that's such a beautiful image as well of thinking, well, of, thinking of that shark that is swimming on the sea in the sea and then thinking about the change as human beings their their ambitions of exploration the change of structures the change of boats all of those things that have been happening a changing world while this you know at the same as they just continue to pass through the water and it's actually great because that was how they got the age right is it was bomb carbon so in those layers that Georgia was talking about, there is a spike. Of that. We actually use quite a lot in oceanography because when people were doing a load of nuclear tests in the 50s, it produced, it produced, it shifted the ratio of carbon. And then that's just kind of stayed. Fortunately, people stopped doing those tests. And then this spike has just kind of stayed in the record. And so what they saw in those layers was they found the spike and they could see there were they could see the layers, but they didn't know how often a new layer how quickly the layers were laid down. And seeing the bomb carbon spike meant they could calibrate and go, okay, that was the 1950s. And then they could count back to find this amazing age range of 300 to five years. Um, so it was actually them living through human activities that made it possible to date them, like our signature on the world is inside those sharks. 
What an awful signature that one is as well. Uh, this is uh, Mark, age 10. Hello, Mark. And thank you for your question, by the way, Eleanor. That was great. Um, Mark, age 10, would like to know, is a shark skin one massive skin like we have, or is it scales? Georgia. Ooh. Um, Steve actually yeah, mentioned they're that. covered in little structures called placoid scales, which are made of enamel. So they're essentially covered in tiny teeth which is what makes shark skin so incredibly strong. And also, if you rub it kind of the wrong way, uh, pretty much just like sandpaper, so it's very, very rough. Excellent. Thank you for that question, Mark. Neil has a question for you, question Helen. For you, Helen, which is, uh, in a throwaway comment a while ago, Helen asserts that an octopus has arms, not legs. But what is actually the difference between an <laughs> arm and a leg? I bet uh, Steve can answer this because I can't. I know there is a thing about this and I can't remember what it is. <laughs> but there are people there is a there is a definition. I don't know. Do either of you two you, you actually Georgia, Steve, this. who wants to put the hand up on the arm leg divide? I can do arm tentacle. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, that, that's that's exactly what I was gonna say. You're you're absolutely correct to go with arm, go with arm as opposed to tentacle. Um and uh, I, I would imagine that because they're they're um they're mollusks that it's the difference between the gastropod foot which is the, the the flat surface that it uses to move and the arm that it uses for um, the tactile purposes i mean obviously they they have no similarity between their arms and our feet but you're absolutely right to make the distinction that uh, in cephalopods they are they are arms and they're only tentacles if they use specifically for feeding such as in cuttlefish and squid Brilliant. And uh, now, now this one's for all of you from Al. Al would like to know, is there a shark that you've never dived with as yet that you would particularly like to find yourself swimming near? So I think all of you can. Uh, I'm definitely the only one who can't answer that. Uh, the I fear water. It brings me out in hives. Um, so who should we start with? Let's start off with Steve and let's go around. Yes, yeah, so Steve. Steve. So um, I, I would say it, it's probably the Greenland shark because it's very difficult. It's really, really tricky. I mean, I've dived with a few cold water species, six gills, uh, uh, salmon sharks, and then some of the, uh, some of the, the, the poor beagles, even great whites, makos, because they have countercurrent heat exchangers, they can move into uh, chilly waters. Um, but the Greenland shark is the king of that. And it's incredibly difficult to do it um, in, a, in an authentic way. Uh, most people that have dived with Greenland sharks have done it using bait, actually bringing them up on hooks, which is, is far from ethical. But to dive with an animal that doesn't mature until it's 100 years of age, that could live to be over 400 years of age, that lived most of its life with a, uh, a parasitic copepod hanging off its eyeball, uh, must surely be one of the great and the rarest wildlife encounters. So that would certainly be it for me. Georgia? Um, I would probably go with a poor beagle, which is which close relative of the great white and a summer visitor to the UK that can grow over three metres, um, largely because they are notoriously shy and very, very difficult to dive with. Uh, and they're just stunning. And I'd love to see one in the water. Helen? Um, for me, it would be something that I probably should have done, because I haven't done very much diving in the UK, I haven't, and that's a basking shark. Um, so most of my uh, research diving and, you know, other diving has been in, in places where you don't get basking sharks. And so even though that you do get them off the coast of the UK, I've never met one. So that would be just because and I think part of it as well is that one of the nice things about sharks like that is is this business of spending time like there's a kind of urgency in the dive community we've got to go and see a thing and do a thing and go here and go there and you know rush off and do all of this and actually I quite like quite just like hanging about pretending to be a fish and I think the basking sharks that probably I mean and maybe the other two have dived with them that, that you can do that with you can just kind of hang out in the water and just be an ocean creature for a bit and I'm I far I prefer that to sort of rushing about and seeing things and you know, the ocean moves more slowly than we do a lot of the time. And you need to want to appreciate the environment. So that would be mine. Brilliant. Thank I, I would say that, that um, bask, basking, basking sharks, sharks Helen, it, they're a nightmare. They are an absolute <laughs> nightmare. Every single time, every single time that I've set up to go and film them and I've got the whole crew together and we've all gone and we've gone like, right, we're going to go to Cornwall for a week. We're going to go to the Isle of Man for a week nothing um i have been jammy enough just purely by luck to sort of you know be at the coast and they'd be about basking sharks swimming past be in my sea kayak and have one swimming past but they are 
almost impossible to predict. And because you can't bait for them, because, you know, they're, they're you know, just swimming along, hoovering down plankton, it, it's purely down to whether the conditions are right. And it's very different, difficult to predict when those conditions will be. Um, so I've been trying for... Uh, about 13 years to film one and the only footage I have is of me quite literally taking my phone when I was in a kayak and sticking it under the water to get a shot of the basking shark thankfully it didn't destroy my phone but they're so so hard brilliant thank you for that question Al and uh, also remember if you have got any questions you'd like to send in now you can just tweet us uh, at Cosmic Shambles and also a reminder of some of the things coming up which uh, if you've not been listening to our book Shambles by the way this year with uh, myself and Josie Long uh, we have a lovely selection of things uh, Nikesh Shukla, uh, Marion Keys, uh, Alan Davis talking about his, his remarkable book and this week it's Kevin Barry uh, so that's freely available everywhere and if you can support us via Patreon uh, patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles then that is uh, also all these new series i've talking about with uh people like neil gaiman and uh and tim minchin and our series uh or an uncanny hour and we're also going to make a load more documentaries as well if we can uh, keep getting uh, our patreon up basically every time we get any more money we just make more stuff um so this is from uh melissa melissa uh would like to know uh georgia are there any strictly deep water sharks there are strictly deep water sharks, yeah, that we don't um, give very much attention to, but are often in dire need of our attention. And some of them actually glow in the dark. Um, so they're bioluminescent. Yeah, I know. They glow in the dark sharks. Brilliant. So where would they be found? Where, where would you find the bioluminescent sharks? Um, yeah, on the bottom, basically. So they'll live very, very near the bottom, like the little velvet belly lantern sharks. Um, they have specially adapted eyes to help them see in the dark with very large pupils and yeah, dark coloured skin generally. Yeah. What was that shark called again? Because that was a really delightful name. The velvet belly lantern shark. They're very tiny as well. They're adorable. It makes fantastic. it sound like some kind of 18th century, you know, those sort of um, blokes in 18th century paintings where they're, they're sort of in velvet suits and uh, they've all got pot bellies. <laughs> <laughs> I just... I just feel sorry for the blobfish. You know, the blobfish is in deep water as well. No. And he's looking at the velvet belly. And he's going, oh, you're a velvet belly. Yeah, do you know what they called me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of that, let's check the belly, let's check the lantern. No, just blob. Thanks, Isn't there this humans. thing about blobfish, though, where the reason they're called that is because when you bring them up to the surface, they go, they, they sort of collapse. But actually, they're not that shape in the deep. It's just that when you bring them out of the water, they've obviously not got a skeleton. You know, they've not got the structure. not very fair, is it? Yeah. <laughs> So, so they're not they're not blobs in their own environment. They're only blobs when you, you know, haul them out into ours. Is it? No, it is, it is shark, true. Um, that, sorry, Georgia. Sorry, just going to say there's a shark called a happy chappy as well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, that's delightful. I know. The, uh, it's nice to know there was an optimistic diver happily uh, when they saw that. Uh, Lisa would like to know, again, this is for all of you, what is your go-to shark fact for party situations? Georgia, go for it. Some Ooh, sharks the... have belly buttons. That is absolutely my favourite shark fact. Right, explain that more because that is fascinating. <laughs> so in sharks have a few different reproductive modes and some of them are actually quite mammalian in that they have a placenta, their babies are attached to them with an umbilical cord, so just like lemon sharks. And when they're born, the umbilical cord snaps and they're left with a little, just between their pectoral fins, a little uh, slit which is essentially their belly button. And that closes over the first kind of few weeks of their life. Right. Okay, then, Helen, your top shark, because sure. I think that started very high. Sorry. <laughs> well, mine have always been about the Greenland sharks. So I've been trying to think of something that I... I tell you what, is the senses, how good they are at sense sensing, how good their sense of smell is. Um, and the one-way nostrils in some shark species are quite like those, that they, instead of... Because obviously, if you breathe in and then you breathe out... Um, you, you you have limited, you know, you, you, it takes the time, you, you sort of lose the time resolution. Whereas if you have a one-way flow over the nares, as you do in some shark species, you just keep monitoring the flow that goes past. And that's what gives um, hammerheads, for example, a directional sense of smell. So yeah, they are, they are, one of the reasons they've lasted for all these hundreds of millions of years is they are absolute superstar, adapt, you know, adapted to their environment, superstars at being adapted to their environment. Their senses, all of their senses are really good. I mean, that's good, but I'm still going with the belly button. Still so going with the belly button so far. Steve. Um, you can hypnotise a shark. 
So following on a little bit from Helen's, uh, Helen's thing there about uh, senses, sharks have a range of super senses. They have the lateral line that runs down the length of their body, which is able to sense the, the wake of a fish uh, long since gone by, by the wake that's left behind as they swum past. Uh, they also have in the snout an extraordinary organ called the ampullae of Lorenzini, which can pick up the weak electrical fields that are generated in the moving muscles of their prey. And in some species, by hyper-stimulating those ampullae, you can put a shark to sleep. Uh, it also works by sometimes flipping them over onto their back or by, by folding their fins. And it's something that we've used repeatedly when we've been studying particular shark species. Um, but my favorite one, I don't know if you've got the photos of this I, I sent over, was uh, of a dive that I did with one particular blue shark, which was uh, incredibly tactile. Um, there, was, there was food in the water, but this particular blue shark kept swimming around over and over again and putting its nose into my hand because it wanted to be stroked. And every time it came there, it would press its, its nose into my hand and you saw its eyes kind of rolling back and then it would just fold up and go to sleep in the water. It was the most extraordinary thing that, that I've ever seen. It was, it was with us for about two or three hours. This one individual shark didn't really seem to be interested in the food. It just wanted you to strike, stroke its nose. And then over and over again, it would just be like, oh, it's just amazing. That's just so good. And then just... It's just, it's awesome. And, and doing that, actually, we've done the same thing with, uh, with tiger sharks, flipping them over onto their back and they'll, they'll just, they'll be out. It's called tonic immobility. Um, and you can study their stomach contents by reaching in, inverting their stomach, which they use sometimes if they, they eat something that's, that's foul, they want to get rid of it, taking their stomach contents and then studying more. You don't have to cut them open. You just flip them over onto their back and pull their stomach out. It's great. Wow, I'm going to give that as a three-way. I'm going to give that as a three-way tie. I've decided in the end, uh, they're all <laughs> excellent. Uh, this is Lisa has just uh, sent in a, a question. Lisa, age twelve. Hello, hello, Lisa. Um, she would like to know, Georgia, are any sharks poisonous? Ooh, and um, we actually, um, we actually have none are poisonous, well, strictly speaking, but we do have a venomous one um, around the UK, which is the spiny dogfish called spiny because it's got spines in front of its fins. And if you get pricked by one of those, you will definitely know about it. Brilliant. Thank you for that question, Lisa. Um, uh, Lisa. Lisa, are all sharks migratory like great whites? George, I'll go to you again. Oh, um, not all sharks. And shark migration is quite a big question because it's very diverse, even within species and within populations. Um, so, no, short is it would be the short answer, I suppose. Now, this is an interesting one from Jonathan, who wants to know about shark memory. Um, do sharks have a memory? He says specifically, not like Jaws 3, The Revenge. Um, <laughs> though I think Jaws 3 was actually Jaws 3D, wasn't it? Jaws 4 was The Revenge. But it's a fascinating thing, isn't it? As we slowly build together different understandings of what we might consider to be the consciousness of other species, what do we know? Steve, if I can start with you, what do we know about uh the memory of something of well i suppose if you want to pick a particular species of shark as well because i imagine there's quite a wide range there in terms of understanding key to know isn't it i mean certainly if you you anthropomorphize it to the extent that you are talking about it in the context of human memory it's certainly not going to be the same but sharks will respond to repeated stimuli um with the knowledge of what is going to happen after that um i mean a, a classic example would be uh, at certain sites you can turn up with your your boat engines and within seconds of you arriving the sound of the engines in the water is enough to bring sharks in to come and congregate even though there hasn't yet been any actual actual food so there's clearly a knowledge that the last time that boat turned up it meant a really good feed and the same stimulus is, is likely to uh, elicit the same reaction um how how that relates to memory on a you know on, on a human scale is anyone's guess Thank you. Thank you for that question. Thank you for that question, Jonathan. This is uh, Georgia. This is from Adja, who would like to know, how does a shark's vision work? Uh, do they see two independent images on either side, or is there a sense that that image is brought together uh, in the brain? Um, they actually have almost 360-degree vision. They've got two blind spots, generally. So I'm going to talk about sharks as though they're pretty much a great white, because obviously you've got hammers, which are entirely different, um, but in a great white. 
they'll have a blind spot right in front of their nose and right behind their head. But other than that, they can see pretty much 360, um, potentially in colour as well. We're still not entirely sure whether they or how they see colour, um, but they're very, very good at picking up contrast. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Thank you for your question as well. Uh, Craven would like to know, and this is in reference to a picture you tweeted, Steve. Uh, it said, awesome photo, swimming with hammerheads. Um, wants to know just how friendly they really are. <laughs> um, I, I would say that I have had, in well over a thousand dives with sharks, probably no more than three or four encounters that you would class as being friendly in the same way that you would uh, an encounter with a seal or a dolphin or, or certain kinds of you know whales the animals that we consider to be sentient but i guess the fact that there have been any at all might be quite surprising to some people um and I think the thing that always surprises people more than anything else, certainly it really surprised me the first time I had an extended period of diving in one place um, with the same animals over and over again, day in, day out, was to what extent those sharks had individual personalities and characters that you could recognize from, from one day to the next. And it's a fish, you know, people don't don't think of, of fish as having any kind of higher higher thoughts or higher power or high, higher character. But but sharks very evidently do. I mean, not not all species and, you know, not all the time. But, um, you know, particularly I've found it with tigers. You can you can recognize on day one the sharks that are going to be nervous and shy, the ones that are going to be bold and uh, you might even say cheeky and the ones that are going to be, you know, full out aggressive. It, it, it's it, it is amazing to see an animal that we may perceive as, as being, um, you know, almost irrelevant in terms of in terms of their um, their processing power actually having personalities it's actually a really burgeoning field in shark science at the moment shark science at the moment is the study of shark personality and it is fascinating and if you spend any time with them as steve said you will recognize very quickly that individuals are very different and the first species of shark that personality was proved scientifically in was another uk was one of our a little small spotted cat sharks. Excellent. That is, yeah, quite near the end as well. So that's managed to, everything has become a uh, Mobius show. Of it. Um, uh, this is a question. I'm going to throw it to you, Helen, because I think you'll, uh, you might. This is from Lenny, who's uh, 11. Hello. Uh, what's the biggest plant found in the ocean? Is it bigger than a California redwood? Okay. So plants in the ocean is a really question because there are not very many. Um, almost everything that photosynthesizes in the ocean is actually algae. So there's this thing, you don't get trees in the ocean. You get these tiny, tiny little single cells, which are doing all the photosynthesizing. So you can swim right through a rainforest, the equivalent of a rainforest and not know it's there. And there are several reasons why one little things do quite well and it's partly because they have a really large surface area for their volume they also don't need to hold themselves up like on land there's all this annoying gravity you have to hold yourself yeah. up to get to the sun whereas in the ocean you know if you're close enough to the surface you'll get some sunlight so you, you can just float around um and and there are advantages to being small and so basically you don't get structure in the same way um there are the seaweeds which are the macroalgae which do get a bit bigger and there you get bull kelp is probably the biggest that, you know, you get these amazing forests of bull kelp where you've got this big, it's almost like a big Christmas decoration about this, you know, that big or bigger. And it's got fronds coming off it and you get these, um, they hold their hold, hold fasters at the bottom and, and they can stretch up for tens of meters and you get these forest like things, but they're not plants. Um, and so the plants you don't, there are a very small number of places in the ocean where you get the equivalent of a flowering plant. So seagrass, basically, there are, you know, in the coastal waters, in brackish waters where it's half marine and half freshwater, um, you get you do get a very small number of flowering plants, but only in water which isn't um, salty, basically. So so actual plants in the ocean are very, very tiny and very close to the coasts. And um, almost all the tree equivalents are a single cell. And it's only the macroalgae like the bull kelp. Uh, which are relatively rare that actually turn into a structure that we can see with the naked eye. So there's this really interesting question of why you don't get trees in the ocean. Um, and it's all to do with, you know, if people forget the ocean is an alien place. The rules for how to survive are different. And it just turns out you don't need trees. 
Brilliant. Thank you, Helen. And you have a chance. You have now, a chance now, by the way, to get uh, Helen's going to end the show with an experiment, uh, which came from uh, off the menu uh, podcast question uh, from James Acaster, Ed Gamble, and Susie Ruffle. So I'm going to I'm going to give you. A, by the way, I'm going to say, Dean, we've had a rollover question from you now for three weeks. I promise you, we'll get to your question about water and pressure next week. Okay, Dean. Um, now. Uh, this is a, a buoyancy question from Crystal. Uh, Crystal would like to know, why don't huge sharks sink? Georgia. Ooh, um, two reasons. One, because they don't stop swimming. And two, because they have a massive, massive liver, um, which is full of very, very buoyant fat. So a, we dissected a white shark that was predated by orca in South Africa. It's about three metres long, which is not all that massive in terms of great white size and its liver was bigger than me um so <laughs> um yeah enormous enormous livers thank you for thank that question you. crystal and then uh east coast ev guy uh i'll start with you on this steve uh what major changes and we've talked to this a little bit about this but uh what major changes in the alpha predator balance have been witnessed with the loss of so many sharks and what is replacing them if anything um, that's an interesting question, a very big question because it's going to be it's going to be different depending on the specific ecosystem. I think it's probably at its most uh, advanced stage in coral reefs. Uh, the idea being that if you lose a, a large predator that kind of scans over the reef, um, its presence adjusts the behaviour of things which might graze on the reef, graze on algae, graze on coral. Um, and I guess it's it's a little bit like the Yellowstone effect, really. It, taking away sharks can uh, not only affect the, um, the 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 fitness of the animals that are on the reef, but also their, their behaviour as well. Um, it, it's likely to be um, also felt in things like kelp beds, where um, I, I guess seven gill sharks and others that may patrol around the, the kelp beds and uh, themselves be controlling the behavior of things which feed on the kelp or feed on things that feed on the kelp. Um, removing that apex predator is going to have a bounce on effect down through that ecosystem to, to everything in it and to the, to the overall visual aesthetic effect of the whole ecosystem. And then in, in the big blue, in the pelagic open ocean environments, I mean, who knows, but it's going to be massive. You know, you, the, the, which once was the most numerous large predator on the planet, the oceanic white tip has in some parts of its range lost as much as 98% of the, its numbers. Um, it's probably at present too complex to know what that effect will be, but it's, it's going to be bad. It kind of has to be. Thank you for, for that answer. The, uh, um, would you like to add anything, Georgia? Um, just that there's been a really, been a really interesting stuff. case down in South Africa at the moment where everyone always thinks of great whites as being top of the food chain and they've actually been knocked off by a couple of uh, orca and now great whites haven't been seen in false bay i believe for about two years because of these believe because of these orcas started predating them specifically to eat their livers and since the whites have moved out they're seeing changes in the behavior and space use of other shark species so we're getting um other sharks kind of moving into great white territory which is going to have and we don't understand yet what effects that's going to have on their prey species. Thank you for that answer. Thank you for uh, the next question, uh, oh. which was Ian's question. No, that was perfect. That was that was great. Do, do not apologise for your prescience. Uh, now, let's have uh, Helen. You have been set uh, a bit of a, a task from, as we mentioned before, off the menu podcast, James Acaster, Ed Gamble on this occasion, Susie Ruffle as well. They had a discussion uh, on their podcast recently and they said that they would get a scientist to sort it out for them. So this is what you have to do now. Does a pint of sparkling water contain less water than a pint of tap water due to the volume the bubbles take up so does this mean a pint of tap water is better than a pint of sparkling water at quenching your thirst so this is the kind of place where scientists feel, fear to tread because obviously what this is actually about is a disagreement between friends and they are all either i am going to either break a friendship or make everyone very cross and possibly both you both so when it comes to the bubbles in sparkling water yes when you if you the more vigorously you pour out water uh, sparkling water um, the, the more quickly the gas inside it will come out and form bubbles. So there is definitely, it is definitely true that if you pour sparkling water very, very quickly, you will get less water in your glass. Um, 
perhaps by about five or ten percent, depending if you pour super, super, super slowly and you so slowly that the bubbles don't have any reason to form, you can almost get as much water in, but it will never be a hundred percent. But now we come to the tricky second part of the question, because this business of whether water, whether sparkling water quenches your thirst better, uh, turns out to be a very active area of study, mostly because people want to know why we're so attracted, some of us are so attracted to, to fizzy drinks. So here's the thing, when you drink water, you stop being thirsty almost straight away before that water has got down into your stomach and been absorbed into your bloodstream. So what that means is it's not that your body waits to tell you you're not thirsty until it's got the water it needs, because obviously you just keep drinking and keep drinking and then you'd have too much. So basically what quenching your thirst is all about is your body guessing, effectively estimating when you've had enough water that, you know, a little bit later that will have got to all the places it needs. And one of the things that affects this is the carbonation of water. So there was an experiment done uh, a few years ago and a series of experiments that followed on where they took um, people, they made them thirsty, they gave them different types of water, but they couldn't tell how much they were drinking. And it turns out that they needed 22% more water if it was tap water than they did if it was carbonated water. So basically to, to stop being thirsty. So basically their bodies went, oh, carbonated water. Your body actually sees it as a poison. It stimulates the trigeminal nerve because of the acid, uh, sends signals to your brain, tell somewhere in all of that, no one really knows where, it tells your brain, okay, there's probably more thirst quenching going on. So you need less carbonated water to stop being thirsty. You don't get as much water. So it is technically true that you get more water in your glass if you um, just have tap water, but if it's carbonated and even more, if it's cold and carbonated, it will kid your brain into thinking you've had more water. So cold carbonated water will quench your thirst quicker, even though there is less water in the glass. And I'm absolutely certain that is going to generate a whole load of late night cross discussions um, over lots of beer about which water is best. But basically, that's that's the, that's those the headlines. Brilliant. Thank you, Helen. That means we've got to the bottom of Helen. That means we've got to the bottom of what's the other one we keep getting, which is about it's not graphs and bar charts, is it? What's the uh, there's a there's a debate that's come every time we've done a, a mathematics uh, Q&A. Yeah, we've think never really come to the bottom of it. Yeah. Um, charts, charts and graphs it's charts and charts graphs. that's it yes uh thank you so much everyone now it should mention again that uh georgia uh, shark stuff is uh is the charity so find out more about where, where's the best place for people to go and find out about shark stuff um either on our website sharkstuff.co.uk or on facebook i say we haven't been particularly active lately so all of our news might be a little bit old but we're hoping to start off some exciting things once covid finishes <laughs> brilliant thank you and and steve obviously we've mentioned the the three-part series on sky in the autumn is there anything we're going to see you on before then i certainly hope so robin um yeah i'm i'm uh, i'm on a program learning how to speak welsh fairly soon um and i've also got a program on foxes coming up um and then oh i'm going to do a uh, a live lesson this thursday on uh, on youtube at two o'clock so one of one of my wildlife q a's for anyone who's out there and homeschooling and bored senseless uh, anything you want to ask about wildlife just get in touch yeah keep an eye because doing lots of stuff over the last that's well, nearly a year now isn't it and uh helen what are you up to um oh so i'm doing an ocean podcast for the bertarelli foundation is about to come out and then um yeah the royal museum's granite ships sea and the stars podcasts are about to start again and then there's other other bits and pieces along along the way but mostly those two in the next couple of weeks in the next Brilliant. couple of weeks Brilliant. And remember, next week, we're going to do Earth and Geosciences. So start sending your questions in now. Uh, that is with uh, Dr. Ian Stewart, amongst others. And uh, also this week, coming up on Cosmic Shambles, uh, Dean Burnett's back with uh, Brain Yapping. Uh, his book, Psychological, is uh, is very useful, as our happy brain, idiot brain as well. So he's back uh, on Tuesday night. It's the live show at eight o'clock, uh, Reality Talks. Uh, I'll be talking about various different things, including the reality of my teddy bear snubby is something I've just, but I'm going to go into uh, some kind of, I don't know if it's actually 
potentially anthropomorphization. But talking about reality, and I, I'm uh, also going to be joined by Zoe Tong, who wrote uh, an excellent book called The Reality Bubble, came out last year on Canongate. And uh, also what's coming up, we've got, a, I think our next book shambles is going to be uh, Mark Steele and Natalie Haynes and me talking about Jeremy Hardy as well. Uh, and, uh, oh, no, it's not. I've just been told that that one is, is still on hold. It's actually going to be the one we record on Tuesday, uh, which is going to be Selena Godden uh, and her fantastic book, uh, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. Um, which is another Canongate book. Book Shambles seems to be almost entirely Canongate books at the moment. The, uh, but the, we do have other books as well, but they do have some very, very good stuff. Um, thanks very much. If you, as I said before, if you can support us via Patreon, that is great because that is, as we still don't have live gigs. In fact, the phone call I had uh, just before starting doing this was another cancellation of a load of live gigs towards the end of the year. So please support us via Patreon because it's the way that we're keeping everything together at the moment. I hope you've enjoyed that and I hope you have lots more questions for us next week. We're back every single week at three o'clock clock as i said cosmic shambles is normally three four or five shows a week as well there thanks trent burton our producer bye thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic shambles.com follow us on twitter at cosmic shambles or cosmic shambles network on instagram and facebook bye for now this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network 